uh, reading from the NIV. If you have your Bibles with you and you'd like to follow, we're in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 47. Be better if I take my mask off. (laughs) When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call with many other words He warned them, he pleaded with them, save yourselves with your corrupt generation. Those who accept his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe in many wonders, signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They said, property and possessions give to anyone who had need. Everyone that continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God the Father for all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Let's uh, just pray for Rich before he comes to preach to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Rich and we pray for him as he comes to speak to us now. Please open our ears, O Lord, to hear your word and to know your voice. And please speak to our hearts and strengthen our wills that we may serve you now and always. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you. So, I gather from this morning you're doing a little series in Acts. So it may be that the first few verses we read today you've already talked about, um, but I make no apology for spending a little bit of time in those before we get into the second half today. Um, I have vague memories of my cousin's wedding in London, perhaps 30 years ago. I think the church was St. James, it was an ancient church beautifully decked out for the wedding, and they'd hired this unusual attire, 
including three-quarter-length Regency breaches for the ushers and so on. I, don't ask me why. Anyway, on the morning of the wedding, the clothing was delivered. And they discovered that whilst the best man and the ushers were all as they should be, the breeches for my cousin, the bridegroom, were in fact far too small. And he couldn't get them on. And you can imagine that with just a few hours to go before the wedding started, there was a good deal of discussion along the lines of, brothers, what shall we do? <laughs> well, in reading Acts 2 this morning, of course, the people respond to Peter in the same way, don't they? Verse 37, it'd be great if you had it open before you. Brothers, what shall we do? Why do they ask that question? Well, Peter spent most of his sermon in Acts giving them a diagnosis of their condition. This is your condition, he says. You're living a life in rebellion against God. You're living the way everyone starts to live in this world. Your attitude is, I want to live my life my way. And despite the fact that God created them, and that he's the one who keeps them breathing every moment of the day, they pretend he isn't there, or they ignore him, or they seemingly do the right things just to fit in with everybody else. But in reality, they run from the Lord, they break his commands, and they deserve his righteous anger, which results in their condemnation. They deserve hell. Peter wants them to understand how sinful they are. He wants them to recognize that what they really deserve is the wrath of Almighty God. Well, you might wonder why he spends such a long time trying to explain to them their condition. And it's quite simple, really. No one is going to hunt for a solution if they don't know that they have a problem. My uncle didn't go out the day before the wedding hunting for alternative trousers for my cousin for the simple reason that he didn't know it was going to be a problem. And we have the same problem today. Until we understand the problem that we have before Almighty God, we are not going to hunt for a solution. We will never ask that important question, what shall we do? Following Peter's explanation, you'll notice the people were cut to the heart, it says in the original. They understood their condition. They knew they were under God's judgment. They were unable to save themselves. They were in a sticky situation. And thinking back to my cousin's wedding, and to quote that classic text, Wallace and Gromit, it wasn't just the wrong trousers, they had lived the wrong life. And judgment was coming. That was their condition. And now they want the cure. Brothers, what shall we do? Or as I think the NIV expands it, what shall we do to be saved? I wonder if you've come to that point in your life also. Recognizing your rebellion against God, his punishment awaiting you. Because only as you realize your condition will you ask that crucial question and seek the wonder of the cure. So he's concentrated on the condition and now he presents the cure. Look at his response. It's clear. It's unmistakable. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and all your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Notice Peter's response is for all people at all time. It's not just for the people he spoke to then. 
It's for those who are far off, that is, far off in time, not just their children or their children's children, but many, many generations off, us included. Peter is saying, the cure for your condition, the condition in which all humankind find themselves, is this. If you surrender your life to Jesus, then your sticky situation is resolved. And if you don't, it's not just the wrong trousers for your wedding. It's the wrong life and will be your funeral. Remember what he said, you're heading for hell. And now he says there's only one hope. And that hope is the Lord Jesus himself. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. That is your only hope. That is the cure. Back in Exodus 32, you might remember, the people of God are at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses is up the mountain receiving the law, which he's going to bring down. And the people of God are at the bottom of the mountain in rebellion, worshipping a golden calf. And when Moses descends the mountain and sees their idolatry and their faithlessness, you will notice in Exodus 32, 3,000 of them die because of their rebellion against God. But now here in Acts 2 verse 31, those who respond positively to God, who repent and are baptised, and there were added... 3,000 to their number that day. If we rebel against God, we should expect only death and destruction. That's the message of most of Peter's sermon. But now as people recognize their sin and the fact that they deserve death and destruction, what happens? 3,000 of them are saved and receive life. They're given the opposite of what they deserve, which is, of course, the very definition of grace. God gives us the opposite of what we deserve life and love and liberty. He is the only cure. So Peter has talked to them about their condition and he's explained to them the cure and it's wonderful. And then he starts talking about their conduct. What should they do as a result of the salvation that they have been given? Verse 32, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And that's what every Christian must do, of course. Because we are saved as Christians, we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And to my mind, this verse reflects a classic Hebrew ABBA kind of pattern. In the original, you may have noticed from what I just said, prayer there is actually plural. In other words, it refers to the formal prayers of the gathered people of God. So they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers. That's about the formal gathering of God's people, if you will. And then the fellowship and the breaking of bread in the middle refers to the church as it does life together outside of its formal church meetings. So we'll look at the apostles' teaching and the prayers first, and then we'll have a quick look at the fellowship and the breaking of bread. First, the apostles' teaching, and the apostles' teaching then, of course is the scriptures now. How devoted are we to God's word? Do we believe that God's word is indeed God's word to us? Timothy writes, of course, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and and training in righteousness. For what purpose? So that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed, all of it. When Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, what does he say to the disciples walking with him? 
well, we read Luke's words, beginning with Moses and all, the prophet, and all the prophets, that's the whole of the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus is saying, all of the Bible is about me. And if all the Bible is about Jesus, and if it's from Almighty God written to you and to me, then why in the world are there some people who've been Christians for a number of years and yet never even read it all? When Peter writes, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, how can we possibly claim to be prepared if we haven't read it? At our home church, we're having a drive to encourage as many people as possible to read through the Bible at least once this coming year. It'd be a good thing for you to do here as well, I suggest. When Spurgeon, that great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, was talking about John Bunyan, he said, prick him and he bleeds bibline. In other words, Bunyan was so saturated with the word of God that he couldn't help breathing it out as he spoke. His words reflecting God's truth. He thought with a biblical mind. He spoke in biblical ways. And anyone who's read Pilgrim's Progress will know that that's true. He be, bleeds bibline. Why not have that as a life ambition? And it starts with reading the Bible cover to cover, over and over, year by year, decade by decade. That's how we gain wisdom. And like those first Christians, it is to this that we should be devoted first and foremost. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to prayers as well. That's the formal prayers among the gathered people of God. Committed to communal worship, exposition of the Bible, intercession in prayer. And in a free church like this, or in, in my home church, we can so easily have a disdain for set prayers, can't we? Prayers written beforehand, if you like. But in fact, coming together to pray collectively using some well-considered and Bible-grounded words is a wonderful thing. And it would be hard to argue that Jesus was against set prayers when asked, how should we pray? He says, pray like this. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. After the Reformation back in the 1500s, one of the things God's people found hugely helpful was Thomas Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer. And although the title today seems inaccurate because prayer seems anything but common, amongst other things, it does at least provide some very helpful, carefully considered prayers which God's people continue to use even today. I mean, consider this. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We've offended against your holy laws. We've left undone those things we ought to have done. And we have not done those things. We have done those things we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. Cranmer hit the nail on the head with that one. And outside of Psalm 51, it's hard to find such a, more, such a helpful way, a more helpful way of confessing our weakness and failure. And it reflects Peter's address in chapter 2 of Acts as well, doesn't it? our sinfulness expressed to our God who saves. Set prayers can be very helpful, used in the right context. And here in Acts 2.42, the new converts devoted themselves to the scriptures and to corporate prayer. But they devoted themselves to something else as well, didn't they? Right in the middle there. 
to the fellowship, that koinonia Greek word, about togetherness, about unity, about looking out for one another, about genuine caring one for another, seeking the best for each other. It's almost familial. In other words, it doesn't matter how weird you are or how much we don't see eye to eye or how irritating you might find me. We stick together because Christian family is blood, united under the blood of Christ. In fact, blood in a far deeper sense than biological family ties. We are a fellowship. And do you see how this ABBA pattern reflects the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. Study the scriptures and be deep in prayer. Love your neighbour as yourselves. Live in fellowship with one another. Fellowship isn't just chatting over coffee after a service. As one writer put it, it is divinely intimate, a holy unity among believers. In 1 Corinthians, of course, Paul describes God's people as the body of Christ. It's not necessarily that we want to be together or that we find ourselves liking one another, although hopefully we do. It is that we are together and we need one another. Love is an act of the will, not primarily a feeling of the heart. And if we're Christians, then we're devoted to one another, whether we feel it or not. And that's so countercultural and so um, un- unlike our individualistic society, isn't it? The, only, uh, the I can cope by myself doing life my way approach is not a Christian one at all. And then in the next few verses, Luke shows what this fellowship looked like for these first believers. In the ancient East, meals were intimate and hugely affirming times with family. And to be invited to a meal was to be invited into the family, to share with them, to have for that time some of the privileges of being part of that family. And theologians have argued for centuries whether the breaking of bread here refers to communion or whether it refers simply to family mealtimes. But I wonder whether Jews would find that distinction slightly foreign. Because the breaking of bread in communion would often be in the context of a family meal and would include giving thanks to God for his gracious gifts and mercy shown to his people. So they're devoted to the scriptures and to the formal gathering of God's people, but they're also devoted to fellowship, to meal sharing, as they do life together in our broken world. And what's the result of this way of living? Luke writes, I can't remember what it says in the NIV, but in the ESV, Luke writes, awe comes upon every soul. Does it say fear in the NIV? I I, I can't remember. Awe came upon every soul. The Greek word is fear. It's phobos. Fear came upon everyone. And it's not negative fear, as if these Christians are suddenly afraid of each other. It's a positive fear. It's a fear of the Lord which, as we all know, is the beginning of wisdom. As Christians lived in this devoted way, devoted to the word and devoted to one another, so their fear of the Lord grew. Their wonder at the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the majesty of God grew. Their love for the Lord grew. Their settled joy in the Lord grew. Fear came upon every soul. The fear of God was palpable among them. You could smell it. You could see it. 
And it seems to me that if we live lives devoted to God's word and to him, and therefore devoted to one another, then our corporate fear of the Lord will grow also. So what else happened in Jerusalem, verse 43? Many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And of course, the key question we might ask here is, to what extent is verses 43 to 47 descriptive, a recording of what happened, and to what extent is it prescriptive, all instruction on how it should be for all of us at all time? And it's an obvious question to ask when it says the result of this is that many signs and wonders were done among the apostles, right? Well, let me just make a few points about these wonders and signs. First, the purpose of these miracles is noted by the language that Luke uses. And as the apostle John does, he refers to them as signs and wonders. The miracles point to the Messiah. The signs are like spotlights. No one's meant to look at them. You're meant to look at the one upon whom they shine. And Jesus' miracles, particularly as they're recorded in John, are seen to do exactly that. When Jesus supplies bread for the 5,000 or the 4,000, the idea was not that everyone go away saying, great, now I'm full, I can go about my business again. No, the purpose was to shine a light on Jesus as the bread of life who alone can satisfy our deepest hunger. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead... The prime purpose is not that Mary and Martha have their tears dried up because they have their brother back again, although I'm sure that happened. No, the purpose was to shine a light on Jesus as the resurrection and the life. Miracles are meant to highlight the Messiah. So we focus not on the signs but on the Saviour. Second, in Acts, most signs and wonders are done, healings, raising of the dead, through the apostles. There are two deacons from Acts 6, Philip and Stephen, who are recorded as doing signs. But beyond that, the other 3,000 Christians from Acts 2, or the 5,000 from Acts 4, or the other tens of thousands by the end of Acts, are not recorded as doing any miracles at all, any of them. And notice here, even the signs and wonders are done through the apostles, not by the apostles. They're God's work. Thirdly, lots of miracles happening at once as a regular part of the life of God's people is not the common experience of God's faithful Christians the world over for the last 2,000 years. But fourthly, having said all that, we do know that God is perfectly capable of doing whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, with whomever he wants. And miracles can happen today. And of course, the greatest miracle is when God brings somebody from rebellion and rejection of him to repentance and faith. A miracle that's occurred 3,000 times just two verses earlier in this chapter. And thankfully, that still happens today. And so whilst we still pray for people's healing, for God's work to go on physically as well as spiritually... Our focus is not on those physical signs and wonders, but on the saviour who rescues the rebellious, like you and like me. The miracles point to the Messiah. And so we read these new believers feared the Lord. Many signs and wonders were done amongst them. Verse 44, all who believed were together. They had everything in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour of all the people. 
In other words, there's a genuine and a real sharing of life. Some had plenty, so they shared with those who were in want. Some had little, but they shared what they had. And Acts 4 tells us there were no needy persons among them. They helped each other out with generosity and with joy. And if you're somebody with means, perhaps that is part of your ministry, to help others out with generosity and with joy. And again, that's something utterly countercultural, but it is a feature of genuine fellowship amongst God's people. And what's the outcome? Verse 47. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice it's not they managed to convert some people. Clearly that's not what it says here. It is the Lord who adds to their number daily those who are being saved. Once we're we're saved, our job is to be devoted to God through the study of his words, through prayer, and devoted to one another in in fellowship. We're to preach in season and out of season, to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have, and we're to live in this self-giving way with one another. And as we do that, God's job, if you like, what God delights to do, is to raise people from spiritual death to life, to make those scales fall from their eyes as they did from the Apostle Paul's, to lift the veil from their hearts that they might see. So we live right, and God brings life to those around us. So to conclude, Peter has explained their condition. They stand under the condemnation of Almighty God, and they cry out, what must we do And Peter explains the cure, repent and be baptised every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins. And then Peter describes their conduct which is to follow. As the Israelites in slavery in Egypt did not receive the law and then get rescued because they kept it. No, they were rescued by God irrespective of their failings and their rebellion. And it's only after their rescue that they're given the law. This is how you should live. Likewise today, when we've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the result is this now is how you should live. We seek to live God's way because God has saved us and never the other way around. So if we're Christians, we're devoted to the scriptures and to the prayers of corporate worship, just like this morning. And we're devoted to one another in fellowship, meal sharing outside of our corporate worship as well as an expression of our love for the Lord who gave us life. A fellowship so deep and countercultural that it urges others to think again. Brothers, what must I do? Because the world's problem is not just the wrong trousers. It's the wrong rebellious life against God, from which the only cure is repentance and faith in the one who offers rescue. To him be the glory. Let's pray. (coughs) Father God, coming to your word is always a wonderful thing, but also a challenging thing. As we consider how far we fall, as we consider how much we fail to do what we should do, and how much we do what we should not do. And we thank you that even in that state, 
you offer rescue. And if we're trusting in you, we have life eternal. And we know that like you raise Lazarus, you will raise us. And unlike Lazarus who died again, we never will because you never have. We thank you that you reign supreme over all and we ask that you would lead us day by day deeper into you and closer in fellowship for your glory and for our good. Amen. Amen.